Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. I think the main thing is to figure out what works for you and anything that can get you painting more regularly is going to be such a gift. And if you can say, well, I'm, I may not be painting every day, but I'm painting more than I used to. Well, that's victory. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we talk with your favorite artists about how to get better at painting. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today, and for the next two episodes, I'm talking with acrylic and oil painter Debbie Miller. In part one, you'll learn how a single workshop changed Miller's life, how she keeps inspired, and her process for working through a painting. In part two, discover Miller's goals for color, why a learner's mindset is so important to getting better at painting, and how the artist finally made peace with her trickiest color, yellow. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 15 for show notes. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. Here we go. Hi, Debbie. Welcome to the podcast. How did you get started in art? When I was in kindergarten, I wanted to be an author who illustrated her own books. That was like a dream of mine at the time. But I unfortunately did not really have any artistic talent. And so when I got, by the time I got to middle school and was choosing electives, art was not on the list of possibilities as far as my parents were concerned. They kind of were in the vein of not encouraging me to do anything I wasn't already good at, you know, like that was just kind of their MO. And I wasn't good at art and I wasn't good at music. And my father said, please take home and learn how to cook because you sure can't play the clarinet. So I really, I, st- I don't think I took art again after elementary school until I was in my 50s. But I'd always loved art. I was a connoisseur. I liked to collect art and I liked to look at art. And I married an artist who graduated from art school. And, you know, so I sort of felt like I sort of had that, you know, I snuggled in a little bit to, to that world, but I can't draw. And so I couldn't draw at the time. And so I just felt like most things were out of my realm of accessibility to me. But I knitted and I did every other kind of craft possible. And then I discovered art journaling because I'm a mental health counselor. I discovered uh, art journaling as a therapeutic process. And I thought, oh, well, you know what? I can do this. (laughs) I can make marks. I can play with color. And so I started going to Michael's and hoarding all the art supplies when I got a coupon. Didn't know what half of them were or how to use them, but I was very enthusiastic And so I started finding out that there were online classes I could take in mixed media mostly because it felt less threatening, but I still wouldn't do anything with paint and I wouldn't do anything representational. I mean, I did things with watercolor or craft paints, but I wasn't going to do anything serious about painting until I was in my 50s, 58, and we took a class with Lisa Daria Kennedy in abstract floral painting, a workshop. And I thought, well, abstract? I could probably make something look like an abstract flower. (laughs) I felt like I had that skill level, maybe, you know. So we took that class and she was an advocate not only for teaching how to paint abstract florals, but for the daily painting movement. And that's what really turned the corner for me. So four years later, I would say now that I really identify as a painter. 
but I'm definitely a late bloomer when it comes to this. I didn't really start till I was 58. So I'm always out there saying to everybody, it's not too late. Don't give up on this. <laughs> well, then you paint in oils, right? I painted almost exclusively in acrylic until a year ago. And I just started switching to oils this past year. So I go back and forth now. What just depends on the project I'm working on, whether it feels like it needs the layering effects I can get with acrylic more quickly or whether I want the kind of fun blendy techniques I can get with oil. So I'm a two brush painter, I guess. You know? Well then first off, do you consider yourself a still life painter? And then how did you come to still life as a subject? Yeah, I think I do consider myself a still life painter. I'm not very good with the figure. And as much as I love landscapes, I feel like my landscape paintings are uninspired. So I come most alive as a painter, I think, with a still life topic. And it started because of Lisa Kennedy's invitation to the daily painting movement. The way she described her process was that she paints flowers every day so she doesn't have to think about what to paint. And she makes one arrangement and she paints them throughout the week. So I kind of just took, you know, that's what the teacher said to do. So <laughs> I came and we would go to Trader Joe's on Saturday, except I couldn't paint just the same flower arrangement all week. I had to make like 12 flower arrangements every week. So I'd have some variety and something to pick from. For the first year, I think almost exclusively I painted flowers. Then I started to branch into other things, but all of it is pretty much in a still life format. And I don't know why I like it so much, but I do. After you took that class, because I know that that class was a, a real turning point for you. Did that class, was it more in the vein of, okay, now I want to get really good at this? Or was it, I can do this every day? It was really both and. There was something that Lisa said about her own process, and she's open about this. So I don't think I'm saying anything inappropriate to share it with you here, but she teaches computer illustration, computer graphics, and she didn't really like to paint because it was messy and unpredictable. And she liked being able to, in digital art, to be able to go back to an earlier version. If she made a mistake, it was safe, you know, but she got cancer when she was in her early twenties and it sort of destroyed that illusion of that you could control your life, you know? And so after she was done with her treatments, she decided that she really wanted to start facing her fears. And so she started painting every day and she originally did it under her middle name instead of her last name so that she wouldn't, it, it was terrible that nobody would be able to link her back to her other work. But now she goes, uses all of her names. <laughs> she owns it. But what she said was so powerful to me in the workshop. She said, I just want to show up every day and make my mark in the world before I do anything else. And that really struck me from just a, the idea of just being present and being present to myself and to this subject, that the beautiful thing I'm looking at and to make my mark in the world. That was, that felt really important. But then it also felt important that she said, if you practice, you're going to get better. And it was my husband and I and a friend, another friend of ours went to the workshop and every day we were texting each other, our paintings and encouraging each other. And then we got together at the end of the month and we each laid our paintings out on the dining room table, you know, one at a time. And we critiqued each other's work and you could just see such a difference between the first painting I had done and the, the one at the end of the, of the month. And it wasn't my best work ever or anything but you could see progress, right? It was really clear. And I got so excited. I would like literally anybody that would give me two seconds of their time, I would say, if you practice, you get better. They should tell people this. And my husband finally said to me, honey, they, they do tell people this. 
this is not news for some reason you're just late to the party <laughs> like but it's when i realized because if i had been a musician or if i had played in sports i would have practiced i would have drilled right i would have had to do scales over and over you know i would have learned younger that the benefits of just repetition iterative learning and that was kind of you know surprise 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 if you practice you get better <laughs> so it had both both and but there's one thing about deciding to do something every day and then there's something else about doing it every day and for you what were some of those sort of external obstacles that you had to overcome and then also the internal obstacles that something like a daily commitment to a creative practice sort of brings forward physical space and time, mental, emotional space was probably the biggest obstacle. And after we were, had been painting a couple of weeks on a daily basis, we took a look at our house. Our studio was sort of set up in our dining room and it had to be taken down if we were had guests or anything you know, coming over. And we realized if we were going to do this every day, it had to be easy. Like it had to be accessible. Things had to be set up in a way that it wasn't taking 20 minutes to get it set up so that you could paint because we had to get done. We were, we start at five in the morning, my husband and I do, and we both have day jobs. So we need to be done by seven 30 and we can, and also get showers and breakfast in there. You know, So 45 minutes to an hour and a half is probably the most we can commit to any one painting. So it had to be easy. And we just took a look at our house and realized that if you walked in our front door, the thing you would first see is the television on the you know entertainment center and the couch was facing it. And I was like, well, this is what our house worships. The biggest room in the house has the TV as the center of it. And is this really what we want our life to be about? And so we moved our TV into the smaller, quote unquote, formal living room. I mean, not that it's formal, but it's a smaller space. Moved the TV and couch in there. And we turned our dining room, our family room, into our art studio. So the largest room in our house is now our working art studio. It also has chairs in it and place for people to sit and be social with us. But we decided to put our money where our mouth is. The real estate in our house now says what's most important to us, and that's the art space. And in doing that, we literally created the physical space, but then that also was just an emotional commitment, right? Like this was a declaration that art is really important. And so I'm really fortunate because my husband was doing it at the same time and he, you know, I didn't get any resistance from him about that and we're in it together. And I do really think that's a lot of, we didn't have as many barriers to staying committed to the practice because we encouraged each other. If one of us was laying in bed saying, I don't know, you, can we just turn the alarm off and we will paint tonight, but we know we wouldn't paint tonight, you know, and so the other person would go, oh, nope. Oh, we're getting up. And then after a couple of months, now it's not even a question. Now it's just habit. It's our routine. Before it becomes a habit, there is that sort of delicate time where, especially for people who are on their own and having to claim that space and that time, which is like time is so precious. It feels like there like, can be a lot of guilt around claiming something that feels like the word we put on it is selfish because it's for ourselves. Do you see your students running into that? Absolutely. And, you know, and the truth is, if we had small children at home and a lot of competing demands, I don't know that we would be 
it would be as possible to keep this space, you know, that space and time kind of so sacrosanct, which we have been able to do because it's just the two of us in the house. Sometimes there are certain seasons of life where a daily painting practice just may not be practical. And I think you have to be realistic about that and say, that's fine. And what does daily painting mean? For us, it has meant literally every day, except for the few days that I was in the hospital and we couldn't paint while I was <laughs> in the hospital. But other than that, it's we've literally been committed to, to doing it every day. But if you paint more days than not, a lot of people consider that daily painting. I mean, there are lots of different ways to define it. So I think the main thing is to figure out what works for you and anything that can get you painting more regularly is going to be such a gift. And if you can say, well, I'm, I may not be painting every day, but I'm painting more than I used to. Well, that's victory, right? So there's no shoulds and guilting about it. We do it now because we love it so much, right? And when we don't do it, it feels weird, you know, and it feels awkward. But I think people do feel selfish. And we used to feel selfish. It was the last thing we would do. You know, you'd say, oh, I really want to paint I really, or really be, be creative or I really want to spend some time doing something creative. But then you have to go to work first and then you come home and you're tired and then on weekends you have chores. And then by the time you get around, you know, so it was always getting whatever was left over at the end of our day. So for us, painting first thing sort of says, well, no matter what else happens, I've already done this. So I can come home and crash in front of the TV. Now I don't feel so bad about it as I used to, you know, because I'm like, I'm not cheating my artwork you know, by watching TV because I made the commitment to doing what was important to me first. But I know that that's not practical for everyone. So I think people need to feel the ability to bless and grace whatever they're able to do. So that's like an early start time. Did you have to arrange anything differently in your evenings? Like start approaching your evenings differently? <laughs> well, I should have. <laughs> what I did, though, is just learn to live on less sleep. <laughs> I don't necessarily recommend that. But the, the intention was to start to go to bed a little bit earlier and, you know, be more, have more self-care. <laughs> that didn't always happen. <laughs> But, you know, the intention is there. So that's always good. Right? The older I get, the harder it is to stay up past later. So it's a little bit easier to get a full night's sleep now than there was. What does painting every day give you, both from a learning standpoint and just from a being standpoint? What does the ritual of daily painting give you? For me, it's sort of like praying with color. It's meditative. I feel like when I'm looking at whatever object I'm painting, even if I'm working from a photograph, I really feel like I'm looking at the thing that I'm painting and I'm engaging with it as something that has been created or something that has grown. And I'm like, wow, you know, this, it, there was artistry that went into that vase and there was like, look at the shape of these flowers and the colors and the variety. And they're like, oh my goodness, you know. So I feel like I get to engage with beauty and I get to start my day with a sense of intention. And so to me, it's it's very much like prayer, but prayer in motion. And it connects me with something bigger than myself. And for me, that's really powerful. And then I also know that my paintings will go out in the world in some way, whether it's through social media or hopefully somebody buys one and takes it into their home. And so then there's a sense of I'm having this experience, but then other people are going to have an experience of it as well. 
And so I feel connected to the source of things and then also feel connected to a lot of other people, people that I don't even know and may never meet. And so I don't know, there's a beautiful, powerful web to be in. And I'm really aware of it very often. Not, I mean, not every single time that I paint, but often enough that it's just like, it's stunning to me. And it fills me with a sense of wonder and awe. And I don't know, that I'm like hooked on that feeling. You know? What an incredible way to start a day. Like even if you wake up tired, however you walk into that space feeling, what an amazing way to start a day. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. That's why I'm so committed to doing it early. Like on weekends, we don't always get up at five, obviously, but we still try to paint first before we do other things. Because once you start doing something else, like it's a different energy. Coming back to painting in the afternoon, that can be fun and good too. But it has a different feel than when I do it first thing. It's got a different feel of, in terms of the ritual of it. If someone is interested in painting every day, is it important to have a system set up? Or are you making all the decisions every day each time? No, I think I think a system's a really important part of it because I think anything you can do to streamline the process is going to make you more likely to continue to do it if you've got a limited amount of time to create. So for me, I work with a limited palette and I use a stay wet palette, a storage palette. So I have all my paints already laid out. I put them in the same layout every single time so that I have muscle memory about where alizarin crimson is located on my palette. You know, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to wonder where it is. It's always in the same place. And I know that's a relatively small thing, but it really is really helpful because if I had to squeeze the paint out every morning, that takes time, you know? And so it's already set up and then I have a working palette that I do my color mixing in, but the paints are already kind of laid out and ready for me to go. I also, once a month or so, we work on uh, wood panel cradle boards. We always work on a red background. So I just spend a day priming everything. So everything's ready to go in the morning. I don't have to do any prep work on my panels. And then in terms of content, since I'm not only painting flowers now, I paint whatever kind of still life thing motivates me. I have several Pinterest boards of different still life possibilities, either from my own photographs or other photographs that I've seen and gotten permission to use. So Sometimes even if I think I know what I'm going to paint the night before, I might wake up and feel bored and not want to paint that. So, you know, if I wake up and I feel bored with the thing I thought I wanted to paint, I was like, oh, I can, I can figure something else out. So th those are the things that kind of keep me going. And I can do some of that legwork in advance, right, by collecting ideas and collecting things that, so I, I don't feel like I have to wake up in the morning and figure it all out. And usually I do 28 February flowers. It's a painting challenge that Amanda Evanston puts out. And so in February, I know I'm going to paint flowers every day for the most part. So sometimes I'll be doing something like that. And it's another thing that kind of grounds me and gives me some the shape so I don't have to figure everything out for me. So that's part of the system. When you were first starting, what were some of those frustrations that you ran into that you then had to figure out systems for? I know it sounds so silly, but I w originally was using one brand of paint that I like, but the caps on the tubes are harder to get on and off. And so I wake up and my hands would be stiff and I couldn't get the paint off. And it was like, took me so much time. I was like, how hard is it to take the cap off of paint? But I work with 10 colors or so it just took a lot of time. And so once I figured out that I could squeeze it out once and work out of larger jars because I was realized that we're committed to this process, we might as well buy it in larger jars. But it feels silly now to admit, but it was 
like, I said it might have been the only exercise I was actually getting was, was opening these lids. Now I'm not doing that, but it's okay. My system works better for me. You know? I have never heard someone admit to the cap problem, but there is like, there's one, it's like a burnt umber that I'm never going back into because it like, I like bloodied my fingers once trying to get the, and I just said like burnt umber, I don't even need it. Exactly. It's embarrassing, but you know, these things... <laughs> It can really get you down in 5 a.m., you know? <laughs> what I think you're saying is that you paid attention to where you were getting stuck or tripping. Those small things can be so discouraging. Like having trouble getting a paint cap on can be where what stops you painting because really you're frustrated about color and you don't understand mixing and why does a composition like there's so many plates in the air with painting that getting stuck on small things can sometimes stop a person from painting absolutely i think you're right and so everything i did that was a little bit easier than the thing i did before i was like oh yeah that's going to be the new norm. Another thing that I know probably may sound kind of silly, but I was using um, baby wipes out of a regular plastic baby wipe container, you know, but when you pull it hard, the plastic would pick up too, and then you're trying to shake it off. But then I bought one of these dispensers that people that have actual babies use, like, and you put the baby wipes in it, and it has a little weighted top, and so it never pulls anything up but one baby wipe at a time. It was like $9.99 or something, and it is like changed my world. <laughs> Silly, but but not because it made it easier for me to do what I love to do. How did you manage those early frustrations? Internally, they can either feel like problems to be solved or reasons why you were never meant to be a painter. Oh yeah. Oh, that's a really that's a really good question. I think by the time I finally got to painting, I was done with the idea that I was somehow disqualified from painting. For so long, I thought there was all these reasons why I couldn't do it, why it's not me, why it belongs to somebody else. And I think by the time I went to that workshop, I think the reason I was ready for daily painting was I was tired of the no. I was tired of the all the reasons why I couldn't do this. I just wanted to do it. And it didn't even matter to me if I was good. I just wanted to do it. And I thought this is worth investing in. Like if I get better, that would be so great, but I want to do this. And I, I didn't want to hear the nose anymore. I'd listened to the nose most of my life and I think I was just done with it. So I don't know how to help anybody else get to that decision point, but I know you can make that decision, right? You can decide I want to do this even if nobody else thinks I'm good at it because it means something to me to participate in it. It, it's, it, it changes me. It changes me to see the world like a painter. That's the way I want to live. I want to walk around looking at everything as like a, a possible subject or to just be amazed because it's, it's out there and I get to look at it. That's the way I want to live. And that's what I think painting has done for me. And I think I just was, I didn't want to hear the nose anymore. I don't know if that makes sense. It really does. And I think that sometimes art can be sometimes the first time we have said yes to something that is for us alone. It's not for us and it's purely for us. And that can feel terrifying. And it can also feel like the first stepping stone 
of realizing that you can have a, a life where you choose yourself sometimes. Yes, yes, yes. You know, it's really interesting because a lot of people were familiar with, I did a collage and journaling workshop for my, because I'm a mental health counselor by day. And so I did that as a therapeutic tool, you know, for people to help them explore their stories. And then I introduced a lot of my clients to art journaling. And we did a two-year-long monthly course here with 13 people that came and we did these monthly art journaling projects. And so people were used to thinking of me as not an art therapist officially, but art as therapy person, right? Art was meant to connect in some ways with healing or growth or whatever. And I think that's beautiful and powerful. But when I decided to become a daily painter, I wanted to explore the fine arts. I wanted to do art, not just as um, expressive art where it doesn't really matter what it looks like because it's the whole point of creating it is to express yourself. But I wanted to create something that I wanted to be able to learn the skill to make it look like what I wanted it to look like. And so a lot of people reacted really strongly and negatively to my fine art focus because they kept saying, where's the meaning? Where's the symbolism? Where's the where's the therapeutic dimension to it? I didn't realize it until you just said what you did, that that was it was for me and the therapeutic benefit. Right. There was the both and kind of piece of that. And so people pushed back. Why are you just painting flowers? Where's the, you know, why aren't you painting anything more meaningful? And then I was getting all confused. Like, am I betraying my calling because I'm only trying to do the fine arts? I mean, it was such an interesting space to be in. And I finally realized I really am a fine artist and I'm an expressive artist. And those two things may or may not intersect, but I'm always me. No matter what kind of art I am doing, it's always me. So I'm not betraying anything. It's just I'm using different parts of my heart and different parts of my mind and different parts of my skills. And and it's okay if people are uncomfortable with that. It's okay if they don't understand this part of my journey. I know it's right for me and have the courage to hold on to that. When people I really love who know me well have been saying, I don't understand. I don't understand why you're not doing anything more symbolic or more meaningful, you know? But I think this is really is for me. It's it's me choosing this for me. And that's uh, that is different. I'm going to transition a little bit. And we're going to get into some of the thinking later, but just transition from a material standpoint. What type of paint and what paint do you use? I use golden heavy body acrylics when I'm working in acrylic. And I use M. Graham oil colors when I'm working with oils. Partially, it's because they're the ones I got trained in using originally and so you know when your your first teacher teaches you something you just kind of think that's what paint is you know but I have tried other brands and other types and I think the pigmentation in those paints and the creaminess of them is just really yummy to me so there are a few colors in oil that I use in other brands because M. Graham has a relatively small number of colors that they manufacture so there are a few colors like they don't have a quid magenta so I have to go someplace else for that. But those are my two go-to brands. And then you mentioned it, but what do you actually paint on? What's your substrate? I use uh, wood cradle boards. They're birch panels with pine sides. And I usually use 
the one and a half inch thick sides, so sort of gallery wrap style. And then we just paint the edges of those black so that it's ready to frame, no expensive framing required. So it makes it easier for people to buy and not to think about making a purchase without having to worry about, oh gosh, how much is it going to cost me to get this framed when I have to get it home? So Well then, thinking about that acrylic oil, how was that transition from acrylic to oil? It was terrifying. <laughs> I was so scared. I did not even want to go to this class that we were going to because uh, she was teaching in oil, but I loved her style so much. It was Sarah Sedwick and a year ago. We took the class from her and um, I contacted her and said, is, is it okay if I just paint in acrylic? And she goes, well, if you absolutely have to, you can. But I teach a lot of beginning oil painters, so I would love it if you would just give it a shot. And I was like, uh, okay. I packed all of my acrylics just in case because I, I didn't know if I was going to like it, but I got hooked. So I think the hardest part is just the investment in, well, I mean, that wasn't the hardest part, but it was, it was an investment. You know, I already had invested all the supplies and materials and, you know, back supplies for acrylics. And then I was jumping into oils like, wow, that's not cheap, you know, <laughs> but I think it was also hard for me because I know this is kind of ridiculous, but it felt like oil painters are the real painters. <laughs> so it felt so, it felt a little too big girl for me. Like, like somehow I was kind of getting above my station, you know, <laughs> to try to paint in oils. But my husband, on the other hand, he felt like right at home because the first painting classes he had taken were in oil. So he was in his element. But now that I'm doing it, I love it because I love to be able to mix up the colors and have them not dry out on you. So now I'm, that's a very, very compelling feature for me. So we're going to jump into process. Could you just walk us through your process? Give us a bird's eye view of it. I primarily work from reference photographs instead of from life. So I will pull my photo that I'm going to use up on my iPad, which I have in a little holder right next to my easel. Then I'll get one of the whatever size substrate I'm going to be working on that day. I get that out. And then I, the first thing I do is grid it because I grid my photographs and then I grid my substrate to help me do sketching and keep proportion. I'm not a naturally good drawer, so I need all the little helping guidelines that I can get to make sure that things kind of stay in the right shape and dimension. And then I, I sketch in with a charcoal pencil or a vine charcoal, and then I start painting. I have my Say Wet palette, pop it open, and do my color mixing, and usually listen to a podcast or something while I'm painting. Yeah, sometimes we'll listen to music. And then periodically we have the, hey, can you come check out this and tell me what you think? You think this needs to be darker? Or what do you think about this? And so have a little critique, and then usually get it wrapped up in an hour. My daily paintings, they're six by six inch squares typically. So it's doable because it's a small amount of real estate to cover. So let's say, for example, you're doing flowers. Do you finish an area and then work out from that? Or do you sort of build up the whole painting at the same time? I typically start, well, it depends. In acrylic, I'll start with my darkest colors often. But if I'm working in oils, I'll start with the most vulnerable color. So whatever color would be influenced if it gets muddy or dirty. So my bright yellows or the ones that I want to stay the most saturated, I'll usually lay those down first. And then I always do my backgrounds last. 
So I like to do negative space painting. So that way it gives me two chances to shape an object. I shape it from the sort of inside out, and then I get to come back and shape it from the outside in as well. So my backgrounds always go in last. I might do it three quarters of the way through if I need to check values or see how the colors are all going together, but it's among the last things that I do. Then do you generally lay down a color and leave it, or do you build up colors? I'm an Ella Prima painter, so I try to get it down with one stroke, not with necessarily just one stroke, but I don't typically build things up in layers. I will come back and layer something sometimes in acrylic. If the color doesn't look right, I can come in and paint over it again or something. But I'm not thinning out my oil paints and doing it in thin layers and building it up. I'm loading the brush up and kind of getting it down in thicker strokes as possible so that it kind of is faster and looser and juicier. Where does the thinking part of it and sort of decision-making part happen? Do you do any of that before or is that generally in the painting making those decisions? It depends on the painting. In one of my daily paintings, some of the decision-making is made when I'm setting up my still life. So sometimes I'll spend a day crafting and setting up a lot of still lives and taking photos and having them just on the ready. And some of my decision-making is happening then because I'm picking background colors. I'm looking at where the light's coming from and what the shadows are doing and what kind of shapes are happening. And I'm making decisions about that and the interaction of that. And also when I'm doing a flower arrangement, my painting is being designed as I'm arranging the flowers because I'm thinking about what's the movement of this bloom and it's going in this direction and I want something to balance it out over here. And so the painting is starting well before I ever sit down at the easel in the time that I'm creating the compositions. I do feel freedom though. Like if I've laid out a teal polka dot tablecloth and yellow background to, for my uh, composition, if I sit down and start painting and I go, I don't feel like teal today. It doesn't bug me at all to change that to magenta, you know, like I'm not, I don't feel like I'm enslaved to what's in front of me or my photograph. So I feel like a lot of freedom to play. But you don't do thumbnails or any sort of value studies or anything like that? I don't. When I sketch, I do a value map with my sketching. So I'll use charcoal to lay in the shadows and lay in the darkest part of the painting. So to me, that's that's the equivalent of a value study or a value sketch because I'm doing it in my drawing. And then I actually let the charcoal, I, I like to use a soft charcoal so that it actually does pick up in the paint a little bit. And it does some of the shading work for me. Now, I know some people hate that. Purists would not appreciate my my strategy, <laughs> but this is my method, so <laughs> that's what I do. It's also kind of a nice unifying effect, too, because it means all your pigments have a little bit of that gray. Exactly, and and I'm, I'm really, I'm a lover of grays, so. <laughs> you alluded to this, like you set up a lot of your own still lifes and photograph them. Why don't you paint just directly from the life? From life. Partially because of where our still life stage is in the room. It's closer to Brian's easel than mine. And just in terms of physical space, it makes the most sense. And he loves to paint from life and he's really good at it. So he kind of claimed it. And I actually am not committed to painting from life. It's harder for me to look up and look at something and then look back down at my painting and then look back. It's in life, for some reason, that up back and forth, it's harder for me to find my space. But in photographs, it isn't as hard for me. And I don't know why exactly. I have some 
fairly significant astigmatism and nearsightedness, and it makes focusing a little harder for me quickly. And for whatever reason, I struggle to see value differences easily. Like Brian will say, squint. I'm like, I'm squinting. It's not helping. It's just not a natural thing for me. So I like to work from photographs because I can bump up the saturation level a little bit, or I can, I can take it into a value app and get a three value or four value version of that same image. And then that just, it's just a tool to help me see what's actually there. And so I need all the help I can get. So I take it. Because you work in the six by six squares, what do you find works in a square? And what do you find doesn't work for a square? I'm always aware of the fact that I'm working in a square format when I'm setting my still lifes up. So I don't tend to pick a lot of flowers that all of their beauty is in their height. And I don't use a lot of tall vases. I use more squattier, rounder vases to put my flowers in if I'm doing flowers. And I choose a lot of things that my arrangements can go out to the sides instead of just up. Because I think that works better if you've got a horizontal sort of rectangular space to work in. So a a square, like naturally, is almost like a target. So I usually try to pick at least one thing that it won't necessarily be right in the center of the page, but it's radial. It's sort of the center focus and everything kind of radiates out. And that's, I think, a natural sort of visual movement in a square because it bounces sort of evenly off all of those edges. I also love to paint vintage dresses. That's another little thing that I'm crazy about. What I discovered pretty quickly was I was working off of old fashioned photographs from Vogue in the 50s and 40s and 50s, and I couldn't get the dresses in the squares and keep people's heads on. So I had to cut them off at the neck, which was fine by me because I'm not a very good face painter. So I was like, okay, get rid of the complicated part, the face, and I could just keep the, the bodice and the, the part of the skirt that's you know interesting to me. And so it's not ideal in terms of if I was a fashion photographer, I would want the whole dress, right? But for me, it's like, I just want to see the folds and the shapes and the interesting things. So the square still works, but it means I just have to crop in certain ways. And so I'm just always sort of testing in my photographs I'll move the cropping around to say, where does this work? You know, so I'll often take a photograph in a rectangular format, but then find the square in that rectangle. You shoot a lot of your own reference photos, but you said that you also use reference photos that you have permission to use. What do you do if a a reference, you love the imagery in it, but it doesn't have great light or is light something that it has to have? To a, a photograph that I see online or um, someplace says it's usually because of the dramatic lighting. And that's one of the things that would attract me. I follow a lot of stylists and floral designers, and I've contacted my favorites and asked them if I would have permission to use their photographs in my as a reference for my paintings and told them how I would give them source credit for it and got their agreement before I used their photographs. So I think that's a way of honoring them as artists and also sharing their stuff with the world. And most people have been pretty happy to say yes, but they're also really grateful that I asked. That's something I'm kind of passionate about encouraging artists to remember is that photographs are art also, and they belong to the photographer. So when I'm working with vintage photographs, I always try to give source credit. Sometimes you can't, like sometimes there's just a photo out there and you don't know where it's from. So then I always say source credit unknown. So I'm just trying to really trying to be good about owning and honoring the creative work of other artists. You can find more about Debbie Miller, including workshops at theymakeart.com and on Facebook and Instagram. We'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kelly. It's really been an honor. 
I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 15 for show notes. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list to get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you like the show, consider supporting it by clicking the support button on the episode page. All right, happy painting.